Do you mind if I smoke? It won't affect the test. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, including the killing jar. I'd take him to the doctor. You're listening to a podcast. Suddenly, you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. Which podcast? It doesn't matter. Just answer the questions, please. Which podcast? Um, now playing the movie review podcast hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Brock. The movie series being reviewed is the Philip K. Dick series with such classic films as Blade Runner, Total Recall, and Minority Report. I go to nowplayingpodcast.com every Friday to download a new episode of the series. You hear a warning that these podcasts will be full of spoilers. I hit pause, watch the movie, and then listen to the podcast. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page photo of a naked woman. Shh, with the questions. The podcast is starting. Today we're talking about Next, starring Nicolas Cage, Julianne Moore, Jessica Biel, Peter Falk, and directed by Lee Tamahori. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. I'm Stuart, and I'm still in L.A., at least until the nukes goes off. (laughs) And this is Jacob, picture frame, Apple, notebook. Just trust me, I needed to say those three things. It was the only way this podcast was going to turn out to be any good. Yeah, can I just say next is the optimum <laughs> way. That's exactly what I said when the movie ended. All right, can we just move on from this? Because oh. dwelling on it is painful. Folks, if you've been listening to our Philip K. Dick series and you've watched every movie before you've heard of our recommendation, I want to personally apologize that you did just <laughs> sit through next because I wouldn't want anybody to spend any time on this. But hopefully we can make some fun out of it. So, Stuart, why don't we start with the briefest of plot summaries? Okay, here we go. Nick Cage. uh, (laughs) Maybe that's all you need. Nick Cage, (laughs) folks. It's him. Untethered in Vegas. Um, He is a psychic, and the way that it works is that he can see every possible outcome of his life two minutes from the present. And so he chooses the best course that will serve his life which, of course, means that he is a two-bit magician and occasional car thief in Vegas living in a dump with Peter Falk. Julianne Moore is the head of an FBI team who wants to coerce Cage to use his powers to help them find a rogue nuclear weapon that their intel says will be detonated in Southern California. And then there's these Euro-trash terrorists who are going to set off the bomb, but they're so worried that the magician is going to work with the FBI that they send their own assassins to take Nick Cage out, too. So everyone wants to kill Nick Cage, but Cage has a date with Destiny, or more specifically, Jessica Biel, a woman that he's been having this ongoing dream of meeting in a Greasy Spoon diner at exactly 8.09, and when he finally does, he tricks her into driving him to Flagstaff, Arizona, where they fall in love along the way. Beale is eventually kidnapped by the Eurotrash terrorists, and Cage is taken in by the FBI agents, and he agrees to work for them to get the nuke, even though he doesn't think that his two-minute head start is really going to help them, and he's kind of right. But it all leads to a climax in Long Beach, where Beale is strapped to a non-nuclear device in a parking lot, and Cage and the FBI agents storm the area, take out the terrorists, And then suddenly realize, oh shit, Cage was all wrong, the nuke detonates, and everyone on screen blows up. 
Luckily, half of the movie was merely a premonition that Cage was having after screwing Jessica Biel in bed in, in an Arizona motel. And that's because when he's with Biel, he can actually go beyond his two-minute time frame and see hours and days into the future. She's like some good luck charm. She extends his powers. And so he decides that he's going to keep her as a girlfriend, calls up Julianne Moore, and they hop into a van to go stop the terrorist, and we are left wondering what will happen next as the credits roll backwards. But I got to tell you, aren't you glad we didn't continue on with Julianne Moore and Nicolas Cage when they got in that car? Because I sure was. I didn't want the movie to be any longer, but I do think it's the most incredible cheat of all time that we do not find out anything that was actually set up. I mean, at all. Oh, yeah. Nothing. Yeah, I, and by that point, I didn't care what happened next. I was no. glad to see those credits roll, and, and we'll talk about how that ending worked, but I didn't want any more. After they pulled off it, the whole, basically, it's a dream, screw mm. you movie. I'm, yeah. I'm ready to turn that DVD off. <laughs> I agree. There you go. Let's start at the beginning. The title sequence, and I'm bringing this up for a very specific reason, because I knew what I was getting into. As soon as I saw this title sequence, well, frankly, I thought it was a waste of time. I thought there's nothing going on here that we needed to know. There was nothing going on in this title sequence that really factored in later in the movie, which I was correct about. All these little flashes and things didn't matter at all because the way he sees flashes is much more intense than what we saw in the movie in the credits. So watching and sitting through that credit sequence, I said, uh-oh, this movie doesn't have anything for me because they're wasting time in the credits. I don't remember the credit sequence. Neither do I, th- I. I think I have the opposite of Nick Cage in this. Like, I can't remember anything two minutes after I've watched it into this movie. It disappears <laughs> like vapor. I don't know what happened in the credits, Scott. You tell me. I wish I could describe to you exactly what it was, Stuart, but I can't because you're right. It's forgettable. I noticed how boring it was, how slow it was, and how it did nothing to get me into the movie. And when I see credit sequences like that... I say to myself, they have nothing here. First thing that I remember about the music or the start of the movie at all is that I feel like it is a clip reel uh, to the ego of Nicolas Cage. He is one of the producers of this movie. Saturn Films is his film shingle. They're one of the co-financiers of the movie. And right away we have Nick Cage looking greasy in Vegas with Elvis music playing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just feel like, oh, this is like every other movie he makes, right? I mean, let's talk a little bit about Nick Cage. How do you guys feel about him? Because I think maybe one out of five movies he is a brilliant actor and i really enjoy watching him and then for every one he gets right there are four cartoonish over the top i can't stand it performances and this definitely is in that majority yeah i'm not a nick cage hater because he has some great roles i love great roles yeah yeah adaptation adaptation Adaptation. matchstick men i even liked him in that I don't know. Maybe I haven't learned my lesson. Like, I still kind of get excited when I hear Nick Cage, but then it usually ends up being the trifecta of The Rock, Con Air, and Face Off, something in that range, um, unfortunately. I always have hope that he's going to do something good because he's done some great work in the past. No doubt. No doubt. I'll go on record in saying I enjoyed the hell out of the first National Treasure. I thought that, that was a really fun popcorn Friday night kind of movie. It's not great, but it's enjoyable to watch. Nicolas Cage is definitely hit or miss. It could have been anybody in this role, really. It didn't have to be Nick Cage, and this is one of those throwaway Nick Cage movies. End of story. I think it's fair to say that I'm most suspicious when he is in action mode, when he's working with Jerry Bruckheimer and doing something really bombastic and over the top. And maybe that's 
just because I don't like a whole lot of big Hollywood action movies to begin with. It's just not my thing. Without yeah, reviewing his whole career, I guess my, my sense is that whenever is he in the mode to do a big action movie like Next is advertising itself to be, I'm a little wary. And then this whole start of it was all about sort of a love fest to Nick Cage and Vegas and how he kind of has always wanted to be Elvis. I don't know. He's a strange character, both on and off screen. I feel he is larger than life. And, well, he's front and center in this movie. It's all built around Nick Cage. And I can't say that I felt like I had a handle on what his character was all about. Can you explain to me what he's doing with Peter Falk. <laughs> is that his father? Is that his roommate? Is that his partner in crime? <laughs> Do they steal cars? Do they just not have a better place to live? I don't understand. You're confusing your Nick Cage movies. That was called Gone in 60 Seconds, where he steals all these cars. <laughs> Peter Falk, does he need the money? He was in, what, two scenes in this movie, and he's, like, fourth build? Why is Peter Falk in this movie? Dude, put your trench coat on. Do a TV movie of Columbo or something. What are you doing here? I don't know, but he did steal that car. I mean, they do make the point <laughs> of when Cage leaves the casino after thwarting a robbery, he runs away in a car and outraces a train and brings the stolen car into the house. And Peter Falk is like, oh, okay, it's a stolen car. So yeah. I almost got the opinion that they were partners in crime, that, but we never know because, yeah, Peter Falk is gone. And I just have to believe that there was backstory here in some draft of a script that never got filmed or ended up on the cutting room floor. It's a real puzzler. I have no understanding right from the start what I'm supposed to feel about this character. His real name is Chris Johnson, but he goes by the stage name Frank Cadillac because it's the two things he loves most. Frankenstein and the car. You might be onto something here, Stuart. I felt like there's something missing, too. Like, here's this guy who could kind of see two minutes into the future, and he's got, like, the worst Vegas act in the world. I don't know how he's surviving off that. I mean, Carrot Top is a yeah. top biller in Vegas. If Carrot Top could have a successful show, someone that could see two minutes into the future could have a successful show. So why does this guy down in the dumps, you know, there's some reference to how he was tested with his abilities when he's like three years old, but the FBI still has to look around for him and find out where he's at. I don't understand this. Obviously, people know this guy has some kind of premonition ability, but they don't, they're not keeping tabs on him. He's not using them to, you know, have a nice, successful life. Like, I don't get yeah, if you want, if you wanted a low profile, because we get the sense that he wants a low profile, he earns just enough money off of his power to be comfortable, but he doesn't want anybody, he doesn't want to get too famous with it or get too exposed with it. He's afraid of the notoriety of celebrity off of this because he thinks they'll turn him into a, a freak imprisoned in a laboratory. So why do a ma magician act? What I got from it was that if he's such a bad Vegas act, no one's going to think he's for real. That's what I got off of it. And so he makes his money not from his crap-ass Vegas show, but because he gambles just enough before it gets suspicious. Although, unfortunately, the guy from Lost is, is on to him uh, on, the, on the monitors. And so that's what I got from the screenplay, is that he's trying to dupe people in plain sight. Yeah, yeah. But he's just going about it wrong. I mean, if you could see two minutes in the future, pick a slot machine where you're going to make 50 grand from one poll, and then you don't have to gamble for a whole year. You know, the security, the gaming commission is not going to have tabs on you if you do that like once a year. It just it seems really forced to me. You're right. He could just do one big score, and but then again, he wouldn't know when that was. Right? He only sees two minutes. He doesn't see 
Yeah, but in the two minutes, it, it should be said, and they don't really explain it till later in the movie. It's actually much more understandable in the original Philip K. Dick story. He can literally just split into millions of himself, and he can go to every table in every casino he can reach in two minutes and play every game, and whatever would be the biggest win, that would be the one he should play. I mean, that's how he knows what to do. So, truly, yeah, he could do one big score. He could win the one big grand prize thing and live off of that. But instead, you're right. He chooses to hide in plain sight, which brings me to my next question. So, if he is not a successful magician, but considered sort of a second-tier, third-tier hack, why is the FBI convinced that he can help them find a rogue newt? Oh, it gets worse than that. You're absolutely right. But... (laughs) Why on earth do the Russians even suspect that he is legitimate also? Because that one guy who stood on the catwalk said he was, who we never see again after that scene. Because he was tested at three years old. I mean, that's the only explanation they give us. But they don't say that guy was the guy who tested him. They don't say Julianne Moore's people. The reason that Russians and the FBI even suspect he's the real deal does not even add up. They don't even tell us why they suspect him at all, and if they do, it's so fleeting it doesn't stick. It doesn't make any sense. It would be like if Al-Qaeda and the FBI were trying to get David Copperfield. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's like, (laughs) that doesn't seem to be helping anyone. The FBI should be trying to stop the nukes. The terrorists should be trying to detonate and make whatever point they're trying to make. And why it would all revolve around a lounge act magician (laughs) is ridiculous. I have to say, though, and, and, and since we're talking about the beginning of the film, I had such a good time with the chase sequence through the slot machines. The first time we see him use his power for himself to escape everybody and t- the choreography of this scene, the, the way he dodges around people and they turn around at the last minute and the guy from Lost, the Korean guy from Lost is screaming into the phone, microphone. The whole thing was so much fun to watch, I actually started to get excited about the premise of the movie. And that's true. The first 10 minutes was a lot of fun to watch once he got in that little chase sequence. Did you guys enjoy that scene? Yeah, I, you know, one of my criticisms, one of my many criticisms of Paycheck was that the Ben Affleck's character was, was just this doofus, that he wasn't, you know, I wanted someone that was cocky and confident. And that's what I liked here with Nick Cage. He's sitting there, you know, counting down from 10, and then he turn around, pick up someone's hat, and then walk right by someone. Like, I like that confidence, how, like, sure he was of himself. And yeah, it was fun. Uh, it, it didn't make a lot of sense how we got to that point, as we've discussed, but it was fun once we got there and we got to see that chase scene. It was reminding me a little bit too much of Paycheck. Maybe I just still had Paycheck in the, <laughs> on my taste buds, but it was, it, it was a little bit better explained in the sense that Paycheck, you have, oh, I have this envelope and there's some sunglasses in here, and because of that, he can you know avoid being shot at and, and all of this other ridiculousness. Here we understand how he can know where everyone is, and it's more like, I think I wish it had been played a little bit more for laughs like i wanted it to be almost charlie chaplin-esque or you know maybe like jackie chan or something there's something kind of goofy about the fact that he knows exactly where to stand and where to be it's also reminiscent of the scene in minority report where samantha morton kind of guides tom cruise through the mall not played totally straight and it works there Mm -hmm. here and next the whole movie's quality was reminding me more of paycheck than Minority Report, and I thought, oh boy, is this going to get old? But I I wasn't against it. I was just maybe distrustful. I wasn't willing to let myself have fun just yet. 
I understand, but you're right. It's exactly the same scene as Minority Report, and Minority Report did do it better, but I did have fun. At the top of this movie, I thought it was a strong way to open it, because it opened the idea of what this power could do for somebody like Nicolas Cage. One of the things I thought they were going to do, because what kicks off this whole chase is that he has a premonition of a guy pulling a gun out to rob the casino, and he stops that, but in the act of stopping that, it looks like he was the one who had the gun, so security goes after him. And he, he makes this mention of if you could see the future, then it changes because he could react to what's going to happen. And that's what kind of kicks off this whole chase at the beginning. And I thought they were going to do something really cool with this, you know, this version of being able to foresee the future where, you know, you get into quantum physics and Schrodinger's cat, and, you know, with the observer principles where the mere act of seeing something, of looking into something, you change it. The mere act of watching, you know, particles bounce off each other, you change the direction they would have gone in. And I thought, you know, maybe that's why this guy has such bad luck, why he's so down in the dumps. You know, how cool would this movie be if it's about a guy who could see the future, but being able to see it and react to it? It changes it so he can never actually gain anything from that future. I thought maybe they go somewhere in that direction, and, and they don't. I thought it was a wasted opportunity, and they go for the much more cliche, trite route here. And So I saw some good possibilities with this opening scene, but unfortunately they didn't go with that. Jacob and Stuart, will you please write that movie? <laughs> I, I thought that would be a great movie that you could see the future and it screws your life up even more I thought that would be awesome I want a story credit in this too I'm going to help <laughs> with special thanks to Philip K. Dick because these yes. are obviously his big themes here yeah. early on he's given a chance to do something really remarkable if I had the ability to know the future wouldn't you want to do anything that you could to stop a nuke from detonating and destroying Los Angeles did they ever explain why he doesn't want to help do that? Like, I didn't understand why he was so resistant. Sort of, sort of. The Only in the sense that he felt that because he was limited to two minutes and because he could only see his own future and not just anyone's future, that it wouldn't be that much of a help. And all I could say to that is, well, why not just tell that nice FBI lady that rather than run and be the target for, you know, days and hours? Then she could go about the business of, I don't know, stopping the nuke that they already know is here. They know so much about it. I'm like, why are you spending time and intel and resources trying to get a magician when you were so close to getting this nuke? I think Cage is right. His powers are really not going to give you the edge you need to get this thing. Right. But I also think he doesn't want to be locked up in a cage because if he helps them this time, I think he said, then you're going to ask me to do help you again and help you again and help you again. And I don't want to get involved. And you can get a healthy paycheck off that and live he doesn't have to live you know with the peter falk uh, stealing cars anymore why would you possibly pay a guy if you got him locked up in a cell to do something like that it's they're not gonna do that <laughs> all right so now we're now back to i want to divert attention to the original screenplay and the original story because apparently the original draft of this movie was much more hewn to the philip k dick story golden man and in that, there was a whole FBI-like team. It wasn't the feds. It was a whole task force that was out to stop mutants. It was kind of like X-Men. There were mutants popping up all over the world. And so it was the government's job to round them up and exterminate them because they were considered a threat to national security. The original draft of that was exactly that. They were hunting Nick Cage because they thought that his premonition abilities were dangerous. And that explains a whole lot. I don't know why they wouldn't have kept that element at all the x-men that's why because of the x-men movie has already been released and it's so x-men it's insane well 
I would rather have it be plausible and derivative than completely nonsensical from start to finish. I guess you could call it original if only because no one would dare try to make this. (laughs) (laughs) Intentionally, you know, like this just feels like 20 different drafts that got sewn together. I mean, he mentions Frankenstein early. I'm like, yeah, you got it. This thing is (laughs) sutured together and ugly. Just a monster. I thought this movie had a whole bunch cut out of it. I honestly believe that it's 90 minutes and it had that credit sequence and it's all over the place after 35 minutes in the movie. I'm thinking there must have been a whole section they cut out of this because this doesn't make any sense why they're doing it this way. But you're telling me it's just the way the screenplay developed, huh? Yeah, the original idea was he was on the run because his life was at stake. And here's where I think it would have been much more plausible and interesting. The love story that develops is between him and another mutant and that she is also in danger. That would certainly make the love story much more understandable here, because right now, the way that it plays, as far as I can understand, is here's a guy that could help stop the destruction of Los Angeles, and he'd much rather date Jessica Biel. I'm glad you said that, because I have in my notes, and I'm screaming at the TV screen after the movie's over, she has to have the same power he does, and she's not telling him. She has to have the same power or some other power because of the whole thing she can help him see farther in the future, and yet she's playing it so coy, and yet we never get that reveal. She's just a girl. and. That doesn't make any sense. No, he does a magic trick and she falls for him after doing like a third rate magic trick on an Indian reservation. The turnover is so quick that she falls for this guy incredibly fast for no reason. If she had some sort of power that he had in the end of the movie when she's strapped with the bomb and all of a sudden she uses her power, it would have been cliched, hacked, and certainly telegraphed, but at least it would have been somewhat satisfying. Right. Right now we're supposed to understand that it's just because she's hot. He doesn't know a thing about her. They're not, they're not age appropriate. They don't have any common interest. The only thing is she's hot and he's dreamed of her eating in a diner. And that's all that he needs to do to guide his entire life in that direction. And it should be said, too, he manipulates her. When he meets her, he uses his powers and he tries about 30 different come on lines to try and what's going to be the one to work. And the, and the thing he figures out is if I let her stalker beat me up, she'll take sympathy and drive me to Flagstaff. Which I thought was a kind of a fun scene right out of Groundhog Day. I, I had a fun time with that scene. I liked it in Groundhog's Day, yeah. I liked that <laughs> movie a lot. I was not having fun with this scene, mostly because I couldn't understand why he would want to go to Flagstaff. What the hell was in Flagstaff? Was he a boyfriend or was he just somebody that was harassed? I couldn't even tell what the relationship was. He's just this annoying guy that comes in and is pushing her around and swings at Nick Cage and then leaps. Yes, I agree with you. It was better in Groundhog Day, but I did enjoy it here. And I thought this scene in the first 30 minutes of this movie, I was like, okay, this is what they're going to do with this power. But yes, as soon as I start driving to Flagstaff and the whole thing in the hotel there, I looked at the DVD player and said out loud, Oh my god, it's only like 33 minutes into this movie? Really? We have an hour more of this? And that's when it really started turning for me. After the Jessica Biel got into the movie, for me, any goodwill the movie had even developed, which was not a lot, but any goodwill it had developed completely sucked away because of that whole Flagstaff Grand Canyon sequence. I thought that they were using the power in a clever way, but it got tired, especially after the Julianne Moore thing with Peter Falk. The whole thing played out, and then they pulled the first reverse on you right there. I just missed him. It was getting old a little bit, but when you have something like the whole thing with Jessica Biel was played for laughs, you know? And that's where it can work. 
work. So you don't really care about the lead guy. You don't care about this lead guy enough. You turn against the lead guy for having this power and being selfish because he is being selfish and not wanting to help. And you know what? Whenever Nick Cage is given a love story in just about any movie, I'm thinking Ghost Rider or whatever, he gets all gooey-eyed. There's something annoying about the way that he tries to project being in love. I'm like, this is like a child who thinks this is how it's supposed to be in love. He gets these dewy eyes like, oh, it's, I can't stand it. He made this one movie about with Bridget Fonda where he was in a she was a waitress and I can't even remember what it was called. It could happen was, to you. Yes, and it did happen to me and I was angry. It was awful. <laughs> I don't like to see Nick Cage in love. I don't know why he insists that love is this perpetual, starry-eyed fantasy, like he's just met an alien or something. I, I just I don't understand why he plays it that way. Like, can't you just be a little bit cool? Can't you be a little bit cool? No, instead he's got to sit there and trade stories about fish falling out of the sky in Denmark. i got to tell you, he tries to romance Jessica Biel in the car by telling her a story about how in Denmark, one time, a drought actually caused fish eggs to fly up in the clouds and it rained fish. I I was afraid that the ending of the movie was going to be them in the desert kissing with fish falling out of the sky. They're going to pull a magnolia. <laughs> I, was gonna have, I had this premonition. Yeah. So I guess it's the only thing that makes the real ending of this movie better is, well, at least the fish didn't fall out of the clouds. Yeah, I actually wrote, this guy is way too clingy. Like, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you nailed it on the head. This is like junior high love here. And this guy's like, I don't know how old he's supposed to be, like 40 plus, but man, mm -hmm. it didn't seem like a real relationship at all between him and Jessica. No, he knows nothing about her. He knows nothing about her. There's nothing to be in love with. He can be hot for her, but he cannot be in love with her. It was kind of like those guys in college who try to scam the girls, like those guys in movies who are like have all the answers for, you know, how to score a chick. Right. Groundhog's Day, that's one of the things I love of that movie is that Bill Murray tries to be calculating in romance and he ends up looking desperate. Like he thinks he knows every move that's going to work her. And the more that he does it, the more sad he becomes. That's how Nick Cage comes off to me with the way that he's trying to manipulate Jessica Biel into sleeping with him. And it works. I mean, it actually does work. She eventually finds out the betrayal and somehow, I guess, gets over it, Mo mostly because then she's kidnapped by terrorists. I guess that helps her get over any uh, feelings of being duped. Well, and, and she doesn't actually find out because that's just a premonition. It oh, right, happen. right. Oh, right. God. I can't remember exactly <laughs> when the movie stops, but they do make this dramatic pull-up where they're in bed and there's the music changes and we're sort of floating above and he's staring up at the ceiling the morning after sex. And the feds haven't gotten to her yet. They haven't captured him yet. The terrorists haven't made their move yet. And I guess I'm trying to think about what is real and what isn't, but not a whole lot has really yeah, transpired. It's hard for me to even talk about this movie because once you know how it ends, nothing matters in it. Nothing's yeah. a consequence. There's no moral to the story. Okay, a bunch of stuff happens, but it's all Nicolas Cage's head. So yeah. what's well, the it's, point? It's hard for me to even just want to discuss this movie because of that. Well, let's jump to the ending first, and then maybe we can go back if there's any remnants to touch over. But you're right. So it negates so much. If the second half of the movie is just an alternate reality that he chooses not to go through with, why are we spending so much time watching it? Like, all we need to know is that path leads to nuclear annihilation and we don't want to go there. So why go there? Why did we spend that whole time and get tricked? And here's the craziest part. That's the turning point that makes him realize he needs to work with the feds. 
Like, didn't he already know that nuclear possibility was imminent? Like, how does that change anything by knowing that the bomb went off? Yeah. Why can't he just leave town? You know, why can't he just leave the state? His character has been selfish and me, me, me the whole time. It doesn't make sense after he sees that entire thing go down that he doesn't just take Jessica Biel, throw her in a car, and drive east. It makes no sense. Here's the crazier thing. So he agrees at the end to, to work with Julianne Moore, and I'm going to help you find the terrorists, but do not mess with Jessica Biel. Hello, Jessica Biel is the only reason he can see further in the future than two minutes. You've just taken away your best asset. Now you're worthless. Go predict some cards and win us some money then, because that's about all that you can do. <laughs> Here, here's the problem, is that we're meant to believe that he has gone through every possibility by the end of this movie and saw that none of these different paths worked, and the only path that would work is working with the FBI. So here's my problem, is that the whole movie is totally arbitrary. They could have told 10, 12, 13, 15 different stories where you could have all got to that same ending of the nuke going off. Here I am rewriting this movie in my head. I would have liked this to be a, a totally absurdist farce where at some point you just see him juggling you know, in front of the terrorists because maybe that will stop them from stopping the nuke. Or maybe there is the scene where the fish eggs fall out of the sky. I mean, I would have loved <laughs> to see this go into some weird direction where it totally lose basis with reality because it's just this guy in his head playing out all these different possibilities. Instead, we see one of presumably an infinite amount of possibilities that he takes – and it's totally arbitrary. You know, th there had to be a better vision that he explored, a different route that he explored that could have been more entertaining than the one they showed us here. You know, Jacob, that movie could have been possible if this movie was directed by Terry Gilliam, but it wasn't. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it wasn't. And I have to somewhat agree with you, but I say, why not have a whole TV show? And each week, he tries a different way to solve the problem. You know, so every week, the show ends with them blowing up because <laughs> it doesn't solve it. And then next week... Boom, you have a new sh episode of him trying again. Yeah, I, I think there's actually a decent story here where something good could have come from it. Roger Ebert has this theory that every movie could be an Oscar award-winning five-star, two-thumbs-up movie. But I, I buy into that. I, I watch movies. I, maybe this is why I like watching bad movies because I could see so many great possibilities. And I saw a lot of great possibilities. They could have done some really great, unique things with this movie. Instead, they turned out a, a run-of-the-mill, cliche, you know, Hollywood production. I love the comment, there is a good movie in there somewhere. Unfortunately, this one is much harder to see than in other movies, say like Superman Returns, where you can <laughs> see there's a good movie in there somewhere, but not for two hours and 20-minute cut we saw in the theater. You know what I mean? I, I'm having trouble finding after the premise gets tired how they possibly could have shown us something different here at the 45-minute mark that would have made it a good movie. I think I you mean, could I have like expedited this. I mean, we, we are a generation grown up on MTV. We're used to rapid-fire editing. If they wanted to show that this path was going to lead to nuclear annihilation, they could have done that in five or ten minutes and then brought us back to the bedroom. But you don't spend the rest of the movie doing that. I am cool with the whole idea. And they do do that trick once or twice where he walks down the hall and a sniper shoots him and he falls over dead. And then he's back at the beginning of the hall and he changes his move so that that doesn't happen. That kind of stuff works. I really like when he splits into multiple parts and goes running around and exploring the docks, too. I mean, I think they have some interesting ideas about how to handle it. But if you make the whole thing an arbitrary alternate reality that he doesn't take, 
then we have to ask ourselves why we bothered and what has been accomplished. We're left not knowing anything. It's irritating to me that we never understand who these terrorists are. What are these terrorists? You call them Russians, Brock? I thought they were French. Like, <laughs> they're just Euro trash. They're just white people because they don't want to politicize this by making them Arab or the terrorist threat that has befallen America in the last 10 years. They wanted to make an apolitical movie that dealt with the politics of, I think, Bush's rendition habits. Like the whole thing seems to be, if it's about anything at all, it asks the question, is it worth taking a few and ruining their lives if it means protecting the lives of millions? Nick Cage, if he has to suffer and have his rights taken away, but that stops a bomb from going off, is that worth it? I think, but you know what? We, we already explored that in a Scanner Darkly and Minority Report, and I like those explorations a lot better than this one here. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. That's It's a great Philip K. Dick theme, and this is just schlock. If they wanted to explore this, if this is how they wanted to go about this, you needed to tell us who this terrorist group was. I don't feel like you can just make generic white people terrorists that won't offend anybody. I feel like we have to know what the threat is. What do they hope to accomplish by blowing up Southern California? Yeah, and I read that there was an original script to this, and I don't know if it was pre-9-11, but it was much more anti-authoritarian. And then when we got this final rendition, it was post-9-11, and they had to be very PC. We're going after terrorists, even though we can't show terrorists as we know them today. There was the uh, Tom Clancy, based, a movie based on the Tom Clancy novel. I believe it's Ben Affleck, where they blow up and nuke at the Super Bowl. Some of all fears. Yeah. The book was about you know Middle Eastern terrorists, and then by the time the movie came out, it was Aryans from Russia or something. But we don't even get that. I mean, truly, we don't eat, know who these people are, why they're here, what they hope to accomplish by doing what they're doing. They are as generic a villain as can be. And they would rather spend their time trying to shoot sniper fire at a man that knows their bullets are coming than to just push the button on the damn bomb. Yeah, that didn't even make sense. If you know he could see the future, why are you trying to shoot him with a sniper right. rifle? Why, right. does, why do criminals still shoot at Superman? They always shoot at Superman. Why? Because he – why? Is he, your bullets are going to stop him? It doesn't make any sense. But I do think you guys brought up something that we should bring up right now before I forget. You could have started this movie with the bomb going off, and then you could have had the whole reversal thing of that's what could – one ending could have happened, right? And then that yeah. whole the whole movie could have started with him with Julianne Moore, right? And then you can go flashback a little bit to how he got there and that whole jazz. It could have worked a little bit more, would have been a little more tighter or thriller kind of thing, and his power could unfold. The simplest, simplest plot, they can tell you a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. And so at the end of it, after you're finished watching it, you're like, that's such a simple story, but the way they unfold it, it makes a whole movie. Point is that here you could have done the same thing. You could have shown how his power unfolds and how it could be useful and how it can be fun if they started the movie with the danger. I think that's a great idea. I mean, no one's going to say they obviously wanted to show you that scene of the boat tipping over in the blast. It's the best special effect in the movie, and they wanted to use it. You're right. It would make a much better beginning. It would be a much bigger jolt than Nick Cage driving around in a car in Vegas. I think that, yeah, you establish the threat. And I'll one-up this. How about if the love of his life actually prevents him from seeing the future? Because that's what I thought was going to happen. I found the whole thing with Jessica Biel not being a clairvoyant 
very disturbing because they gave so many clues. Like she, uh, this brand new guy she just met, convinced her on a piece of paper to crash her own car and then walk. <laughs> that didn't make any sense to me. You wanted an explanation so for why she was such a dope. That why she would be so naive and manipulated. The whole time, with her being so stupid to let trust this guy so completely, I thought she had an agenda, and it didn't pan out. Right. You want to believe that there's another dimension to her, because this character is the most fanciful thing in an impossible movie. The idea that you would have a supermodel woman that drives hours out of her way to teach English on an Indian reservation, apparently has part-time, has nothing else to do with her life, and then because somebody gets punched in the face in front of her, she's going to drive him to Flagstaff, and then she's going to screw him, and then she's going to listen to the FBI and try and drug him, and then she's going to decide, no, he must be pure of heart. I mean, this character character is ridiculously wholesome like really ridiculous mm-hmm. and, and she did come from seventh heaven so <laughs> <laughs> so you're right i didn't anticipate her being psychic but i did anticipate her having her own agenda or at least some tether to reality but no the reason why nick cage loves her the reason why they're destined to be together is because she's the dumbest girl on earth <laughs> Oh, that's that's her Vegas act right there. The dumbest girl on earth. <laughs> they established Jessica Beale as someone who is against predestination. She says overtly at some point, she says life is supposed to be about surprises and she doesn't want to know what happens next. So what if being around her prevents him from being able to see the future and stop the threat? And he's got to make the choice that way. Much better movie. Much better movie. So we're trying to basically say that we can rewrite this movie better. In a matter of minutes, boys, we have fixed major plot holes that all of these, all the King's horsemen and all the King's men couldn't put Cage's ego together again. The movie's a mess, and I'm hoping we're conveying the, <laughs> the movie in some sort of way you all can follow it. But basically, the problem with this movie is this movie. They have such a nice, an interesting premise going on that they just did not use properly, and it's a shame. I, you know, I did review the original story. It is incredibly different from what we get here. It's barely recognizable. You can go over to Books and Nachos and hear my thoughts on the original story. I'm not a big fan of the original. I got to say, I had a lot of problems with the characterization, but conceptually, it was the way to go. And and it may have been two X Men to follow it literally, but it would have been better to have an X Men ripoff called The Golden Man than it would have been to have this movie. You know, they had that scene, though, earlier. You mentioned that they had the FBI, and why is the FBI spending all this money and resources going after this one guy? They did have that scene of Julianne Moore, her boss, and some other guy arguing about why they need to go after Nicolas Cage in one of the worst directed scenes in the movie, where it just pans across this room for no reason as they're having this conversation as the all the actors stand still. I'm not sure if I really can watch another scene of actors walking and talking and giving exposition for no reason but standing still and giving it i think is even worse and making the camera move around and those characters were kind of in the original story they i think even some of the names one's named wisdom and that was a character in the original story i think it was probably just a remnant from an early early draft that was much more faithful to the philip k dick original story but that's what i'm talking about where it feels like they extracted whole parts of this movie i just feel that this whole movie is fragmented and if they're going for some kind of grand 
beautiful allegory about how the man who lives his life this way has a fragmented life. They weren't going for that. So <laughs> it doesn't fit. Were, were they going for any message in this? I didn't get any message out of it. Yeah, I didn't get any message no. at all. You know, you know the, all. The, one of the biggest problems, that's fine. If they wanted to do this whole thing as a dream and, and as a big, you know, whatever. That the isn't is, fine, but all right. Okay, I will proceed for whatever your point is. Go ahead. <laughs> Here's the bigger problem with that is that they cheat. If this whole thing is a vision of the future and they've established that Nicolas Cage can only see him and Jessica Biel's characters in the future, well, they have scenes here where it they're not involved at all. They're showing those scenes. They break the rules. Oh, they totally break the rules. Problem. Like At least with like a, a movie like the, the Sixth Sense, when you watch that again, they don't break that rule. There's scenes where you think people have interacted with Bruce Willis, but they never actually do when you go back and watch it. This movie breaks those rules. So you get to that end, and I think that's why we're so we were all surprised by the ending here that it was all a dream or a vision or whatever. They establish the rules and then they just throw them in the garbage. Yeah. No, You're they right. definitely yeah, they don't follow their own rules. It's supposed to be Cage can only know his own future and nobody else. And they waffle on that all the time. The means by which when the feds finally get him, they bring him into a room and strap him down and have one of the clockwork orange eyelid lifters on him. Yeah, Why? I was really upset. Why? How is that going to help him? There's two blatant Kubrick references. They also show a clip of Dr. Strangelove, which is about nuclear yes. annihilation as well. I'm like, right. really? You're not Kubrick, Lee Tamahori. Just knock it off. But why even have a device to pull his eyes open? He doesn't need that to see into his own future. He does not need that. You don't need to put the eye drops in. Right. And so just by watching TV, he's suddenly able to project what's going to happen. It was infuriating. And then here's the real corker. The whole climax is built around jessica beale tied to a bomb in a parking lot but the bomb isn't the nuke what bomb is this they have other bombs <laughs> so why not at least just make it simple and like have her tied to the nuke like why complicate that i think that if they had her tied to the nuke then she'd have to die they all died well yeah but it's not that mo <laughs> yes <you're, laughs> yes Stuart. yes so, Stuart, Jacob, do you recommend next? Stuart? Uh, you know, here's the thing I've been wondering. Is this the worst one of the series? I really didn't like Paycheck, and I was no Screamers fan. But this, it's the least plausible, most infuriating. I can say that much conclusively. <laughs> it's the most irritating one of the entire series. Is it the worst? I don't know. There's some fun sequences. It's not like every minute is jaw-droppingly awful. It's bad enough to not split hairs. This movie is The Pits. It's one of the worst, if not the worst, Philip K. Dick adaptations. It's a complete disservice to the source material. I've got to give it a very strong knock recommend. <laughs> Jacob. This isn't the worst one we've done for this Philip K. Dick retrospective. I, I'm What's still the worst my... one? Imposter. It's still imposter. I'm still holding my guns to imposter. <laughs> oh, wow. The worst one. That wouldn't even watch... be in my top three. Well, I would watch this and Paycheck and Screamers before Imposter. But wow, <laughs> wow! But look, you want a great movie that plays around with time? Go watch Momentum. You want a great movie about parallel worlds and, and you know seeing the decisions of your choices? I'm going to recommend a uh, romantic comedy. Go watch Sliding Doors. You want to watch a movie about you know maybe mutants with powers? Heck, X3 is better than this one. So, no, I don't recommend Next. 
I don't recommend this movie. I think Imposter's middle section makes it the worst one for me. The first half hour of this movie, I was willing to give it a lot of chances, and then I just turned on it because it ran out of its luck. It ran too far down for me to get invested in these characters, invested in his power, to actually care what was going on. The screenplay didn't help. The direction didn't help. This thing's a mess. And uh, this is the guy who brought us Die Another Day. A whole bunch of things just didn't work. But there is certainly a premise here for a movie that absolutely could work. And I just call that a shame. It's just a shame. So, no, I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it at all. So, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to nowplayingpodcast.com and download other podcasts in this Philip K. Dick retrospective series. And while you're there, download episodes from our Predator series, from our Karate Kid series, Back to the Future, Star Trek, Terminator. We have a whole bunch of retrospective series there, all in our archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com. There also you can find links to our Twitter. You can find links to our Facebook page where we post on movies we see during the week. Just off the cuff. Just post something up there, a couple of sentences about what we're seeing. You can join the conversation there. You can also join the conversation at our forums. And you can find that link also at our homepage where you can discuss this and any other episode of Now Playing with other listeners like yourselves. If you agree or disagree or want to have a conversation about the themes of the movie, anything you want. All that can happen in our forums, and you can find that at www.nowplayingpodcast.com. Lastly, if you enjoyed this series, please, please, please leave us a positive review on iTunes, because that way other people like yourselves can find us, and we can continue to bring these podcasts to you week after week free of charge. We would appreciate a positive review there. Thanks. So, Stuart and Jacob, we have now come to... The reason we're doing this retrospective series, we are leading up to the brand new Philip K. Dick adaptation called The Adjustment Bureau, starring Matt Damon. It's going to be a tiebreaker. I was doing the math on this one, and I have recommended four movies, and I have not recommended four movies. So this is going to be the deal. This could push this to be the best series I've ever done for now playing, with giving me the most, where I actually like more of the series than didn't recommend the series. So I'm optimistic. I've seen the trailer. I don't know too much about it. I have read the story, and you can read my thoughts about that on booksandnachos.com. They'll have to do a lot to expand it, but I am optimistic. I think it's going to be, well, unlike any of the other ones in the series, I'm quite convinced that there's some kind of romantic, almost nostalgic 1950s quality to it that should be interesting to see. I've never seen too many romantic science fiction stories, so we'll see what they do. It seems to be they've got an interesting cast and a good source material. So I'm hopeful. Yeah. I've only seen the trailer. It, it, I got to tell you, I would still be interested in seeing this movie, even if I wasn't doing this retrospective just from the trailer alone. It, it's caught my interest. I love mixing the genre. So you know what? A romantic comedy. I don't know if this is going to be a comedy. It doesn't look like comedy, but a ro- romance science fiction story. Yeah. Why not? I'm up for it. I'm looking forward to it. Matt Damon's in it. So I probably would have watched it anyway. I do enjoy watching movies that Matt Damon is in. Usually, even if they're bad movies, they're enjoyable enough to watch or at least sit through the whole thing. I'm looking forward to it for that reason alone, but I have no idea what I'm going to watch. I always like going into a movie like that, being completely blind, and so I have no expectations at all. So I'm looking forward to it. And we'll join you next time when we talk Adjustment Bureau. Talk to you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series. 
the best mind forget. You can find the other episodes of the Philip K. Dick Retrospective series at nowplayingpodcast.com in the archive section, as well as our reviews of other classic movie series including Predator, Terminator, Star Trek, Rambo, The Karate Kid, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. No doubt the precogs have already seen this. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive review on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed can be found at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You can also support Now Playing by making a donation using the donate button at the bottom of our homepage. Your donations help keep Now Playing on the air. We hope you enjoyed the ride! <laughs> you can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post movie mini-reviews, as well as announcements of new episodes. Links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing presents the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series podcasts are edited by Jay. I've seen every possible ending here. None of them are good for you. The films discussed in this series are the intellectual property of their respective trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Venganza Media Incorporated. The precogs are never wrong. But occasionally, they do disagree. Now playing is copyright and trademark Venganza Media Incorporated, 2011, all rights reserved. I went through every possibility, yep. Uh, picture frame, <laughs> Apple, notebook. That reminded oh. me of Bill and Ted when he said, remember the garbage can, remember the garbage can, the garbage can will fall on his dad's head. I would have rather been watching Bill and Ted. Than- <laughs> <laughs> There's no creativeness in this credit sequence, and they're bothering to even do a credit sequence, you know? If you don't have anything to show me, then show me Daniel LaRusso driving across the country then, you know? Show me something like that that sort of goes in with it. The- Daniel LaRusso from Karate Kid? Yeah, it, it was a reference to our Karate Kid podcasts in that in the first movie. Because <laughs> that the- would make any sense, Brock, if the Karate Kid were in this movie. <laughs> yes. I think that would make less sense. This flashes of Mr. Miyagi and Elizabeth Shue. <laughs> so the, the, I um- think you just wish you had been still watching Karate Kid the next. And who does it? Yeah, I would. <laughs> and we never yeah. see him again. He's, never I guess, hanging again. out with Peter Falk. I was going to because- say. <laughs> And I'm, I'm trying to say something here that's different than yes. Um, uh, again, I, 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 yeah. Think of all the different possible responses. <laughs> right, right. What's going to work? Go into your mind. Go down all the toilets and try and find the way out of this movie. All right. So we'll reconvene when, for the Adjustment Bureau. Any last words on next? No. Yeah. I don't next. Think so. <laughs> next movie. <laughs>